KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Monday, August 2nd. The San Diego Convention Center reopens for events. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. San Diegans are turning to retail clinics for COVID-19 vaccines. According to county data, retail pharmacies provided the most shots in July, administering more than 100,000 doses. Overall vaccination rates are on the rise as COVID-19 cases also continue to go up in San Diego. On Friday, the county reported 1,273 new COVID-19 cases, the highest daily total since February 5th. An off-duty San Diego police officer was arrested on Sunday on suspicion of assault with a deadly weapon and brandishing a firearm in Pacific Beach. San Diego police say they responded to a call about a disturbance outside of a bar. They later arrested Trevor Sterling, an off-duty police officer who was allegedly carrying a personal firearm during the incident. According to the police department, Police Chief David Nislight immediately suspended Sterling without pay, saying the behavior is unbecoming of any police officer and that the incident will be investigated to the fullest. The National Weather Service has issued a heat advisory for the mountains of San Diego, Riverside, and San Bernardino counties. It'll be in effect from 10 a.m. this morning to 8 p.m. on Wednesday. The NWS also issued an excessive heat watch starting tomorrow through Wednesday for the San Diego County deserts and Coachella Valley, where temperatures are expected to be upwards of 120 with lows in the 90s. The NWS says drink plenty of fluids, stay in the air conditioning, stay out of the sun, and don't leave your pets unattended. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. For the first time since March of 2020, the San Diego Convention Center is open for conventions. It had its first show on Sunday, thanks largely in part to the county's vaccination efforts. KPBS's Melissa May was down at the convention center on Friday for their ceremonial reopening. San Diego is among the most vaccinated of major convention destinations in the United States. More than 70% of our eligible population is fully vaccinated. Rip Ripito is the San Diego Convention Center's president and CEO. He says the facility served the community in other ways for the last 15 months. We never really shut down. We operated as a homeless shelter. We operated as an emergency intake site for children, you know, unaccompanied minor children. So we've had probably more experience than most in operating through a pandemic. The convention center did take an economic hit. We lost 150 events over that 15-month window, and it equated to $2 billion in economic impact into the community. 
The reopening comes amid new worries about the Delta variant. County Supervisor Nora Vargas addressed those concerns. And they're going to be requiring uh, masks right inside the convention center. But at this time, we're just monitoring and doing whatever the safest um, guidelines are from CDC guidelines, et cetera. And right now, it's just making sure that you know people get vaccinated, but it's not mandated uh, to come into the, to the convention center. Ripito says protocols are in place to keep people safe. Through October 1st, any show that has 5,000 attendees or more are required to show that they are either negative test or have been vaccinated. We've gone through and done improvement on ventilation systems. Uh, we've put signage in restrooms talking about personal hygiene. We've got disinfecting uh, stations uh, throughout the venue for people. They also have a cleaning protocol that matches the California Department of Public Health and Cal OSHA standards, and cleaning is done throughout the day. Some notable upcoming events scheduled at the convention center are the celebration of life for Father Joe Carroll on August 10th, and Comic-Con Special Edition will be in town November 26th to the 28th. And that was KPBS's Melissa May. While top athletes from around the world are competing for glory at the Tokyo Olympics, one teenager from Encinitas is preparing to represent the U.S. at the Paralympics. Also being held in Tokyo, it's an international competition for athletes with disabilities. KPBS's Alexander Wynn has his story. Watching Joe Gomez run on the track and you wouldn't know the recently turned 18-year-old is legally blind. So my visual impairment is called blue cone monochromacy, and I have had it since birth. It's a genetic condition. It means that things further than an arm's length are a blur, and he can't differentiate between certain colors, such as orange cones on green grass. So once my dad was actually running alongside me, they, were, they had already packed up at the end of the meet because our race was the last race of the day. So he was carrying the chair and holding our dog on the leash and uh, telling me, go this way, go this way. And the announcer was saying, parents, please don't run with your athletes. Uh, so we had to explain to the announcer after that. In high school, Joe ran with sighted runners. Competing for the Paralympics was never the dream. In fact, Joe and his parents didn't even know about it. It was through a phone call with the U.S. Track and Field Para-Athletics Committee Chairman Richard Roberts that the Gomez has learned about the Paralympics. I was the one that contacted him when they would not let Joel wear sunglasses at his competition in high school. And so Richie Robert asked me on the first phone call, he said, well, how fast is he? And what is, how legally blind is he? It was through that call that Joel's parents eventually agreed to let Joel be visually classified with the Paralympics. He's classified in T13, the least visually impaired division. It means he can differentiate between shadows and forms. 409.39 for Joel Gomez. Very good run by the American. While Tokyo is Joel's first Paralympics, he is no stranger to competing on the world stage. In 2019, I was nominated to the uh, World, world Junior Parathletic Championships, which were held in Notwell, Switzerland. And I competed in the 1500 meters and 400 meters there, and I won gold in both events. And then I went to the Parapan American Games, which were held in Lima, Peru, uh, that August. And I uh, finished uh, second in the 1500 meters, so I won silver in that event. Still, making the U.S. Paralympics team wasn't a sure thing. So when this name was announced... It was just pure ecstasy. It was, it was amazing. 
And that reporting from KPBS's Alexander Wynn. In Tokyo, Joel will be competing in the 1500 and 400-meter races. The Paralympic competitions start August 24th and run through September 5th. Three Republican candidates in the September recall election have hit the threshold required to get an endorsement from the state party. CAP Radio's Mike Haggerty has more. The rules say a candidate must have at least 200 delegate nominations by 11.59 p.m. Saturday to be eligible for a party endorsement. As of now, only three candidates, talk show host Larry Elder, former San Diego Mayor Kevin Falconer, and Assemblyman Kevin Kiley have reached that number. Other well-known Republican candidates, such as Olympic gold medal winner and reality TV star Caitlyn Jenner, former Congressman Doug Osi, and failed 2018 gubernatorial candidate John Cox, have less than half the delegate nominations they'd need. Cox is among the candidates blasting the state party for the endorsement rules, calling it a backdoor deal that would dampen the enthusiasm of the grassroots. The final vote on a party endorsement is August 7th. And that was Cap Radio's Mike Haggerty. Coming up, during a pro-Israel rally held in El Cajon, violence erupted between a far-right extremist group and counter-protesters. We'll have more on that next, just after the break. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. More now on a recent event in East County that drew Republican recall candidate Larry Elder and others to El Cajon. It was billed as a local show of support for Israel, but that's not how it'll be remembered. Violence between an obscure right-wing group and counter-protesters broke out. And now there's questions about whether there was coordination between local groups and local law enforcement. The San Diego Union-Tribune's Andrew Dyer is on the story, and he's done a lot of work on these East County groups over the past year. He joined KPBS's Christina Kim on the roundtable. Here's that interview. So let's just start from the beginning. What exactly happened last Sunday? What did you witness? Well, um, this rally in El Cajon with, uh, you know, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and uh, California Governor Candidate Larry Elder, just about as soon as it was announced, organizers on the left and pro-Palestinian groups started planning their own kind of counter demonstration. Plan was to march from uh, the, the city park in El Cajon to the rally and disrupt it in, in some kind of undefined way. 
And what exactly happened? I know there was bear repellent being sprayed. It did become violent in nature. Yeah, so the protest marched for several blocks with no issue until it got about um, a block east of where the, the We Are Israel rally was being held. And a, a handful of, um, you know, I described them in the story as, as extremists from far-right groups were kind of there waiting for the protesters. These protesters, I, I really want to clarify, this was a, a group of several groups, right? So there was some pro-Palestinian youth organization, uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, um, but there were also, uh, I guess you would describe them as leftists or Black Bloc or Antifa was also there kind of as an ad hoc security force for the main body of the protest. And once we got to this traffic barricade, it was the, the members of the Black Bloc who were kind of on the vanguard of this march. And um, almost uh, you know immediately whenever they got there, El Cajon police, there were Two Oklahoma police officers, um, uh, videos after, you know, videos shared online show this, um, who kind of backed off and disengaged while these far right uh, individuals came up and immediately started kind of taunting and, and just, uh, you know, you know, when people are about to fight, there's a lot of uh, posturing and kind of uh, chest thumping. It didn't take long before uh, punches were thrown. In your reporting this week, you really tried to answer the question whether event organizers and Al Cajon police communicated with a group called Exiled Patriots. Police and the main group called Shield of David deny it. But why did this question even pop up in the first place? Well, so Exiled Patriots um, is led by a, a guy named Mike Ferzano. He used to be one of the leaders of Defendees County, which is kind of like a larger, more well-known group that sprung up. Last year, during the George Floyd protests, they had a falling out with leadership. And so, you know, Forzano started his own group and they've been front and center at several protests that have had clashes between, you know, either Black Lives Matter demonstrators and and, and the right. But on, a, on, a, on his Instagram account, um, the day after the rally, Forzano on video, he, he said that organizers from Shilda David reached out to him and, and his organization to talk about what the security structure at this uh, this event was going to be like. Now, this is kind of a shocking allegation because, you know, you know, Forzano w w would deny this, I think. But some of the, the people he's with were members of American Guard, which is described as a, a hardcore white supremacist group. And for a Jewish organization, you know, just for there to be an allegation that this org would coordinate with with people like that. It's kind of like you know strange bedfellows. So yeah, I asked I asked the organizers point blank like, did you talk with Mike Forzano? And they you know they emphatically denied it. You know, pointing out they had private security, they had State Department security because of Pompeo's presence, um, and they had the local police force, and they had no need for this group. Now whether or not they there was any formal arrangement here. What happened on the ground was that this far-right group certainly saw themselves as there to protect the, the pro-Israel rally. And if that was their goal, then I, I guess they succeeded because after the, the fights and the spraying of the bear spray, um, this pro-Palestinian protest, you know, they turned around and, and went back. And that was the end of it. But there was allegations online, additionally, that um, El Cajon Police Department let some of these folks park in their parking lot at the police station. Now, the police say that, you know, they never talked with this group. 
and that that parking lot is open anyway and they don't let people park there just but they also don't stop people from parking there so yeah they they also denied any any coordination no arrests were made this past sunday but you do know that chris wyrick was there he's currently facing charges for alleged violence elsewhere is that right why was it important to note that he was also at these events you know, it's important because this is something that we see happening over and over again um, in Southern California. It happened in Ocean Beach on January 9th. It, it happened um, in La Mesa on August 1st. Um, it happened in Yorba Linda in, in, in September where a, a woman drove her car over a man and, and is facing charges for that. Um, this is the same place where Wyrick allegedly fired bear spray. You know, this is happening and, and it keeps happening. And if you pay attention that it's the same people who keep showing up at either protests or political rallies as kind of an opportunity to to engage in violence and with their perceived political enemies. Thank you for mentioning that, because sometimes I think listeners hear about these incidents and they see kind of like one offs and they don't really know how to make sense of them. I think you've started to do this, but how do we put what happened this past weekend in a greater political and racial context here in the San Diego region? What does it really tell us about what we're living in? How are all of these kind of skirmishes or standoffs connected? You know, that's that's the same question I had, and it didn't make it into my story, but I did talk with a researcher uh, named Pete Simi. He, he researches, you know, extremist groups. And what, what he told me was that, you know, a lot of things are happening right now that create kind of like a perfect storm for this. For one, the pandemic, people being in lockdown, being online more, where, you know, this political rhetoric is, you know, it's a cauldron of, of misinformation, of disinformation, of, uh, of this sort of thing. You have the George Floyd protests last year. We have mask mandates and people opposing mask mandates. We have, you know, just there's a lot of things that are motivating people to take their activism off of the internet and and into the the street you know so it, it's kind of like just this perfect storm and, and taking in the context of what we saw after the election you know the the january 6th uh, insurrection at the capitol that was not the first um, instance of of street violence in dc after the election you know there was also kind of a proud boy rally and riot in, in December. So from, from that perspective, when we're talking about looking at patterns and, and, and what's happening on the streets is that it certainly appears that like street fighting is somehow or somewhat a, a part of, of our politics right now. You quote Forzano boasting that it's going to take more than bear repellent to stop them, saying, quote, they underestimate the kind of beast we have on our team, end quote. What does this tell you about the psychology and the values of exiled patriots? You know, I really don't, you know, I don't want to put words into, into Forzano's mouth. I have watched a lot of his videos and listened to him. And if you listen to him talk, you know, his slogan for his group is hate is for rookies. They don't want to be associated with white nationalism or racism. And in speaking with Simi, you know, he describes it as, as civic nationalism, which is this kind of uh, pseudo white nationalism where you take all of the elements of you know the extreme nationalism, traditional values, and package it in a way that is racially inclusive. It makes it a little more palatable to the mainstream. It, the group that Weirich is affiliated with, American Guard, the, you know the ADL calls them hardcore white supremacists. But Simi told me that they've also pivoted to this more civic nationalist mindset 
and a rally like We Are Israel kind of presents this perfect opportunity because it's a it's a Jewish group one. Uh, Larry Elder is a black man too, so it gives them kind of some cover to come out and say, "How can you call us racist? This is a Jewish group and a black man speaking, and we're here saying that you can't disrupt that." So certainly there, that element is is there. It, it, it's also a lot of kind of that machismo alpha male kind of mindset some people might call it toxic masculinity but i think it's a lot of posturing and i mean i liken it to like a, a pro wrestler you know taunting his next opponent um on, on wwe so, um, it, that's i mean that's the best comparison i can make that's what this kind of rhetoric reminds me of you mentioned Larry Elder, who is among the top tier of recall candidates for California governor. So do you think that for him, was attending this event a valuable use of his campaign time? Is he kind of relying on on these groups and, and the people that um, are attracted to them to really lead him to victory, to really kind of gain uh, that vote? You know, I, I didn't speak with Elder or his campaign. I don't know specifically what he would think of this group, but maybe a, a real generalized answer is that for a, a Republican trying to win the governorship in California right now with the makeup of our electorate, um, I would imagine they would take any vote they can get. That was Andrew Dyer with the San Diego Union Tribune. He was speaking with KPBS's Christina Kim on the roundtable. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com.